Have you had trouble finding a healthcare provider that really understands the needs of runners? Created by physicians, therapists, and trainers, runcare.org, this week's sponsor for the Doctors of Running podcast, aims to solve that problem by providing a nationwide list of recommended providers who specialize in working with runners. Each provider in the RunCare network has been vetted and evaluated so you know that you're visiting someone who knows the value of your training and lifestyle. The list currently features over 50 doctors and physical therapists across the U.S. and is expanding to have providers in all 50 states. RunCare's goal, first and foremost, is to get runners connected with the care they need. Visit runcare.org today to learn more. Everyone and welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors for physical therapy, talk about the art and the science of the things we put on our feet. Today, I have Dr. Myers with me, Andrea coming on, and we're going to do a buy or sell episode, which is always really fun, where the two of us are going to go through some questions that both our colleagues, Bach, some uh, some uh, listeners have always been uh, nice to share with us. Current controversies different things that we're, we'll hopefully disagree on a little bit just to create some some interesting conversation. But uh, yeah, it should be really fun. These episodes are always really cool because we get to kind of discuss some of the things that are on our minds currently. Uh, first, before we get started, Andrew, I always got to ask how you're doing. I hear you just uh, decided to do a treadmill run instead of running in like negative five degrees. How was the treadmill run? The treadmill run was pretty good. Um, I think I made the right decision because I did not get frostbite or come back frozen at the end. Um, kept myself entertained with a Goggins podcast and watching the Valencia Marathon. So the time flew by. <laughs> That's funny. My wife, when she was uh, doing, trying to shoot for the treadmill, like 50K record or whatever, the 50 mile record, she was listening to David Goggins the whole time. And I'm like, oh, that yeah. makes total sense as a way to get you through treadmill stuff. I Absolutely. somehow have never done any longer treadmill runs I think that's because I've been so spoiled being in either the Northwest where it hasn't been that bad when I've been there or the majority of my life have been in Southern California, which I have no right to ever complain about weather here. Like even we had that big that big storm that was coming through. I still ran outside and my wife was like, you're going to die. And I was like, it's sprinkling. Like <laughs> You are a very spoiled California. I, yeah, definitely a spoiled yes. Californian. So like that's why I have no excuse to to not run outside. So I'll do it regardless. But – yeah, that's maybe that's a buy or sell is like weather. <laughs> but we're right. talking about that. <laughs> but our actual buy and sell before we start this, something that we have been talking about a lot as more and more super shoes are coming to the market, as more and more of the trainers that we wear are actually starting to get super suit components. And obviously, everybody's always like, hey, so what would these times actually be like if these didn't exist? Our subjective today is if super shoes didn't exist, what modern shoe would you race in? And Andrew was quick to correct me because my, my first response was like, oh, I would race in the Takumi Sen original. She goes, modern. So it has to be out now. So let us know in the comments whether you're or, or message us. Let us let us know if you're watching this on YouTube or listening to this on Spotify or wherever you consume this media. Let us know what modern shoe you would consider racing in. Do you have an answer for that? Well, this will surprise no one, but um, since it has to currently exist, I yeah. think it would actually be the Brooks Hyperion Max. And you're um, say but- that. <laughs> Honestly, if the beacon still existed, it would be Ooh, that one. That's a yeah. great one. You know, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I wish I'd thought this through. Um, 
if we're not counting super like if if a shoe that still is not considered super super is something that we could consider i'd probably i know i joked about this but the takumi sen 9 if we're allowing that stuff because it's technically not that maxed out that you know i would definitely consider racing in that shoe i don't know what else there's some really good options out there that have been fun to work out with out in you know what? I'd probably be racing in the Hyperion GTS, to be honest with you. If we really are going to get really specific here, yeah. that's probably what I would race in. I think um, for the purpose of this question, we should say a non-super shoe does not have PIBA and it right. doesn't have a plate. Right. No plate, no special foam, has to be something modern. Yeah, so I would do Hyperion GTS for sure. That's We've been a solid choice. shoe. Yeah. I'm, still, I'm coming up on 100 miles on those. Somebody remind me to do a 100-mile review. Not sure if people actually pay attention to those, but anyway. All right. One so, the, yeah. Oh, on that topic of that yeah. shoe, um, uh, one of my friends is a pro triathlete, and she uses the Brooks Hyperion as like her recovery day shoe. That's impressive. No joke. Yeah. Although, you know, if you're used to some of that stuff, that that doesn't surprise me. If you like more minimal yep. stuff, I don't I don't blame you given how light it is, and it's still got some cushion, but that's still right. Impressive based on what is what do, what do they race in? Uh, Vaporfly. So three. They, they, that's <laughs> that's the ratio in the ring. Hey, I'm not. You know, that's the good foot strengthening tool, but for a recovery shoe. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. I mean, impressive. I love the Hyperion, but I would not use it for like my easy slog shoe for sure. Hey, whatever you know, whatever floats your yep. your boat. But Absolutely. on that on that topic, although I don't think this is what's this person's marathon PR. I think she ran like a. 250 but that was before she like really got fit right. and i think she ran a sub three hour marathon at the end of an iron man got so, it all right this is yeah. not good this next question is not going to apply to this person because <laughs> that is insanely <laughs> fast at the end of an iron man um so our first question or buy or sell comment is using super shoes for marathoners over four hours this has been a kind of a big uh, not controversy, but it's def- there's definitely been some talk about this. There's actually been some studies about this from Dustin – one study from Dustin Jubert that I know. But I'm going to toss this to you first. What do you think? Should marathoners over four hours be using super shoes or not? Buy or sell? Well, I'm going to say buy, but of yeah. course with the caveat of it depends. So that uh, Jubert study was really well done. Um, it compared the Vaporfly 2 to the Asics Hyperspeed. And they found like, I think around a 1.5% running economy improvement in the Vaporfly 2. But there are a few things you have to consider. One, the hyperspeed might not be a good shoe for those people otherwise. So perhaps a better comparison would have been a non-super shoe that they would have raced a marathon in if they weren't, you know, trying out the Vaporfly 2. The other thing is, we all know, since we test so many shoes, not every super shoe is comfortable. Not every super shoe works with your mechanics. So you have to find a shoe, one that's comfortable. You know, we've talked a lot about the run cat, how to find the different attributes of shoes that work well for your feet and your biomechanics. Um, it also has to work well for 26.2 miles. So a shoe that you might love, you know, racing a 5K or 10K in may or may not be the shoe that feels great for a marathon. So one, you've got to find a shoe that is comfortable, that you can go the distance in. Two, then you've got to compare that shoe to 
other shoes that you might have worn in a marathon that might feel more comfortable or might still feel faster. So it comes down to you've got to make the right decision for yourself. There's nothing magical about every super shoe that means, oh, you're going to put it on and you're going to run a PR. There's too many other factors that go into it. I I totally agree with you. I'm actually going to be a little bit more controversial and I'm going to say sell on this. But also with the same caveat is it it obviously there's a lot of variables that go into this. If you're someone where there's a super shoe that you love this shoe, it works for you. You've done long runs successfully and not had any problems in the shoe, and you kind of you've done some good marathon simulation stuff or like. I think that's totally fine. We also didn't specify what race distance. So if you're talking about like a shorter race, I think it's fine. But a lot of marathoners are obviously going to be shooting for a marathon. So I think if you're going to do that, my opinion based on Dustin's study, which I also get, they use the hyperspeed that, to be honest, most people are not going to wear. That's that's kind of your more traditional racing flat, which when those were a thing – Racing flats were only used by a very small percentage of people, and to be honest, companies used to lose money with lose money with racing flats because it, they did not sell. Versus now, for the first time, we're seeing racing shoes are actually like being taken in huge volumes. So, I'm still going to say sell because I think there's better options over the marathon distance, and I think the benefits are not outweighed by the risks of being in these soft, unstable, aggressive shoes. A lot of marathoners and people are probably not gonna like they may they might feel bouncy the first 10 or so miles, and then when you have to learn to control that, that's where I have some concerns and kind of tending to overuse these shoes. You know, we still don't know a lot about this, so I will acknowledge that, but I think some better options people should be open to are some of these like half super shoes, like the the Saucony Kinvara Pro or the Hoka Mach X. Mach X? Am I saying that right? Yeah, Mach X, the Adidas Boston 12. Shoes like that I think are are better option because they're part trainers and they've got the super shoe components. Or to be honest with you, if your goal is to finish and be comfortable, you might do fine with some of the lightweight trainers out there. But again, if you find there's a super shoe that works for you, awesome. You know, the New Balance SC Elite 3 is a shoe that a lot of people have success with because it's comfortable, but it's also not the most aggressive super shoe. It was a shoe that I found Great for longer runs, but I did not enjoy picking up the pace in. So I think you're totally right. It depends, but I'm going to be more on the sell end. It's not that you can't use them. If you find them, great, that you like them, awesome. But I think most people are being sold on this. Oh, this is going to make this be so much faster. And that's not what these do. They improve your ability to hold a faster pace over longer periods. That's what running economy is. It's not how fast you go. It's how efficient you are. But you have to be able to use that tool. And I think there might be better tools for people to maximize their performance. But that's my opinion. Yeah, definitely. I think you made some really good points. Um, I do think, you know, just working with patients who are runners and some of the people that I coach, um, People who go into running shoe stores looking for a marathon shoe, I mean, so many of them are just like pushed on the Alpha Fly or the Vaporfly without like any consideration about their pace, their experience running experience level. Yeah, yeah, and that that really bothers me because and then they're not like educated that no, you shouldn't do every run in this shoe. It's a tool, but it's a tool for a specific purpose. So they're basically handed like this very high tech racing shoe and just sent off to figure it out themselves right. i so, know I, yeah i know i use this analogy a lot it's like me 
even though I'm in Southern California and I drive faster now, I'm an Oregon driver at heart, which means our speed limit on the freeway is 50. So that's like giving me, who's only really driven Honda Fits or Subarus, giving me a Lamborghini and expecting me to be able to handle that driving in Monrovia here. It's like that. Don't do that. That's not appropriate. I wouldn't do Mm -hmm. that. You know, I'm spending however hundreds of thousands of dollars on a car that really doesn't match what I need it for. And I'm going to probably run it into something. That's how it goes. So I'm not saying people that's what's going to happen, but (laughs) it's not appropriate for somebody just getting into running and learning how to run when you have the other variables of like not. And I'm not saying four hour marathoners are new. There's lots of people who've been running for 10, 15, 20, 30 years who are four hour marathoners. I just think the way the mechanics are designed are developed with that. shoe is not with that individual in mind. Right. Yeah. Sweet. Did I interrupt you? My bad? Oh, no. All right. Mm -mm. All right. All right. So our next buy and sell, which I'm really curious to see how we go on this. So the next buy and sell is heart rate monitors for runners. What do you think? Buy or sell? Um, I'm going to say buy on chest heart rate monitors and sell on optical heart rate monitors in watches and arm straps. So the... So one, heart rate monitors are a good tool. It's one measure of your physiological output. Heart rate is not a perfect measure. It can be influenced by a lot of external factors like heat, dehydration, caffeine, fatigue, if you drank alcohol the night before. So you can't just like set your heart rate zones and like stick to them perfectly because there are so many other factors that are going to influence your heart rate at a given effort level, pace, energy output. Um, So that being said, a chest heart rate monitor is the closest to EKG accuracy you can get. Um, They work by measuring the electrical signals from your heart. Um, That's why I say buy for the chest ones. The optical ones, which are in like every watch that's on the market in Fitbits, you know, any wearable, um, and now some companies are coming out with the arm strap. Those yep, are I've less accurate. Oh, um, <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. I didn't uh, know that. I've seen those everywhere. And I'm like, what? The, what is this? So that's great to well, know. Good. The new thing that's marketed is just less accurate than what we used to have. Cool. Anything optical is less accurate because, of course, it works the way a pulse ox does. It's shooting red light into your skin and you it you're positioning it over an artery so that pulse of blood flow interrupts the light that's being shot into uh. your wrist or arm and that's how it gets your heart rate well that can be well it is less accurate there have been some studies on this and they actually found that the watches are more accurate for sedentary activities so like if you just want to know your heart rate like sitting around or you know doing stuff around the house there it's closer in accuracy to a chest strap or even to an EKG but when you're running when you're cycling there can there's conflicting evidence about whether or not if your arm is moving more like running or using an, an elliptical with like the arm things that might decrease the accuracy. Um, But there's so much anecdotal stuff out there where people test like their heart rate strap versus, you know, the optical sensor on their Garmin watch or their Coros watch. And typically your average heart rate with an optical sensor is lower and you're going to get a lot of erroneous readings. So when I first got 
like my first Forerunner watch that had the optical sensor, I decided to test it by like using the sensor with the watch and then having my heart rate chest strap feed to a different watch. And it was wild how different they were and just on like an easy run. Like my heart rate rarely gets over 165 and the wristwatch said that I was like up in the 180s for like 20 minutes. So... <laughs> <laughs> Good thrust, like you know, like all anaerobic threshold effort. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I run. like should have been dead. Um, so, you know, for me, the wrist uh, optical sensor definitely doesn't work as well. So I just turn it off on my watch. It improves the battery life, and I just use a chest strap. I know that some people don't like the feeling of a chest strap, and I get that. And I guess you could make a case for like just using the watch. And if that's the only tool you're using, it's going to be off, but at least it's like consistently off. But I think it's also important to have like accurate heart rate readings in case like you have sudden bouts of high heart rate or tachycardia. You need to know if that's actually like real or if that's an artifact from your watch. So um, buy for chest heart rate straps, sell for everything else. How about you, That's totally fair. Um, If we're going to talk about overall... This is maybe me being a hippie, but I'm I'm going to go with sell for the majority of people. And the reason is I, data is great. I think that's really awesome. But there's also been an equal amount of evidence that suggests that your internal feel can honestly be more accurate than a lot of these things because of the errors that you're talking about. Yes, even the heart rate stuff. But if you're doing like an EKG, things like that, that is actually an evidence base that's been found to be valid and reliable. It's, it's the gold standard of what you use. If you don't have that, like, Kind of what's the point? And I'd also ask the follow-up question. If you are like overextended and you don't feel good and you're going, oh, I have to keep pushing because my heart rate says it's – my rating says it's this. I feel like that's putting at risk for training. One of the – one of my, my opinion is runners should be learning to really understand how they feel and be able to reel that in just because we've seen actually – Correct me if I'm wrong, there's been a lot of great cycling studies that have found that if you train and go based on your internal feel, people tend to be better at reading when they're ready to go for like intervals or efforts and training. So I think it's a great tool for the right person. I feel like most people don't need it and they need to learn to listen to their bodies better. So I'm going to go with sell for most people. But I think for those with cardiac issues, oh, yeah, that's a great tool. I think you should be required to have one, to have the the heart rate strap just to watch and keep an eye on things to make sure if you're feeling nauseous or dizziness, that's not coming from this. But I'm still a sell for most people just because I don't I don't want it to replace getting to learn, getting to know your body. Yeah, I would agree with that. And actually, even though I always wear my heart rate strap, I never look at my heart rate data. <laughs> and if you asked me what my heart rate was at any given time, I could probably tell you within like three beats per minute. Right. Um, yeah. And so it is, it's important for people to understand what like different effort levels feel like. Um, but I think for running, you know, out of all of the metrics you can use, heart rate is still the best measure of your physiological output. Running power meters really aren't there yet. Um, And obviously pace is affected by too many things, wind, temperature, you know, uphill or downhill. Um, So if you, like, when I coach people, I want them to wear a heart rate monitor. If it's a watch heart rate monitor, fine. But I just want some physiological metric that I can 
track over time so I can start to learn how their body responds to different training. That's fair. What about using something like the Borg scale, to, which has been shown to be fairly fairly consistent with, with heart rate and helping people learn what their effort is? I'm going to be honest. I hate the Borg scale. Like, I've been an athlete my whole life. And if you asked me to rate, like, my training, like, oh, you went out and did this workout today. What number would you give it? I don't know. I didn't die, so not a 10, you know. Right. So... I know that there's all of that research out there saying the Borg scale is like a reliable measure, but I just don't use it because I personally hate it. Right. <laughs> this is honestly, so this is a tangent, but some of my students and some of my patients might notice that I don't actually ask the pain scale anymore after I started learning about how unreliable it is. And it's just like, I'm not going to ask you to, to do a zero to 10 because nobody understands what that means. And there's actually very good data that suggests it's not very valid or reliable and it's very inconsistent. So I'm like, I'm not even going to bother asking this because I'm going to be able to tell based on our conversation, if I do a good subjective, what your like, how severe and how irritable this is. But it's interesting that that kind of mirrors you're like, I don't really know what the, it, the research might show something, but it's like, I don't know. So I get it. I hear you on that. But yeah. I think and me being I agree like with trying to get in touch with yourself is like exactly. against, against heart rate for most people. But I, you are right. Well, actually, you know, you're bringing up the pain skills similar because a lot of patients will say, well, it's hard to rate it because it's a low level of pain, but it's there all the time, which makes it worse. So similarly, like doing a 20 mile, like moderately paced run could feel a lot harder than like a five mile, you know, threshold run, depending, you know, on your levels of fatigue. So I also, now that I don't deal with insurance companies anymore, I don't ask the pain scale anymore either. Because there's so, you can document a person's pain pain in so many better ways than a number. It is so much more multifactorial, which might also go to the same thing with effort, that it's so, there's so, there's so many more variables into that than just, how hard was it in terms of there's different way? Okay, that's that's fair. I'm still a bit of a sell, but you've almost convinced me, so I get it. All right, so let's go current controversy right now. Our next buy and sell question, which, Andrew, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump in on this, is are the Canvaras safe for running? Um, the, the background behind this is another reviewer out there was basically saying the newest Canvara 14 was absolutely not safe for runners because it flexes in the midfoot. And I do want to give some acknowledgement that, yes, shoes that have a major flex point only in the midfoot are really not a great option just because there is no joint there that flexes in that plane of motion for those watching on YouTube or whatever medium you can see me. So I'm holding up a foot model. All the places that have like sagittal plane or front to back motion are either at the toes or the actual ankle joint itself or the tail accrual joint. The midfoot doesn't have any joints, or at least it's not supposed to have any joints that flex forwards to back. That all most of the majority the majority of the motion is in the side to side motion. That and that doesn't even that's not even correct. It's actually more like diagonal is actually how the planes of joint motion are. Um, so I do understand that there's not a lot of research on this. This is more clinical experience about going, yeah, shoes that tend to flex in the midfoot can be irritable for a lot of soft tissue there, be it plantar fascia, be it a lot of the intrinsic muscles, be it putting stress on some of the bone tissue there. So I, I get that. But my other thing to be really careful with is when you get a shoe and some people have probably heard me this before. When you get a shoe, if it's not on your foot, do not do the bend test. I remember that was a big thing. That is 
Let me actually not curse on this podcast. That is absolutely stupid. If you bend the shoe at equal ends, basic physics means that it's going to start bending in the middle. If you do the bend test it's and like aggressively, it's going to create a midfoot flex point and you have screwed up the shoe. Okay. It's not supposed to flex there. If you work hard to create that, that's not great. Okay. So I'm going to say, by the Kinvaras are safe for runners. They are designed as a more lightweight, minimal shoe. As long as you don't create a flex point, that's fine. I will say, to be fair, and I'm curious, Andrew, to hear your thoughts on the newest version, that one of the things I didn't quite like as much is how much the midfoot narrows. When you have a narrower midfoot, it does, because there's less surface area and less material there, does make it increase the risk of it, it flexing there. I have never had that issue. A lot of times when I have put this shoe on, that wasn't a problem for me because I'm pushing off pretty hard through the forefoot, and I'm not somebody who's doing the bend test for whatever reason. Um, when you do bend it in like this, yes, it does start to crease in that way, but that's not something I felt. I've never had any plantar fascia issues. Um, so I do think it's safe for the majority of runners. There's no specific flex point, flex groove in that area. Could Saucony maybe have extended the outsole pieces a little farther forward there? Yeah, that might have been a great option, but I think this shoe is safe for runners personally what do you think i agree buy on canvara's canvara the original was actually the shoe that got me back into running you know however many years ago i love it um but that being said it's a really neutral shoe it's gotten a lot more stack over the years you know the original canvara was like slightly beefier than a racing flat now the current Kinvara, I think the heel stack height's in the low 30s, right? I think like it is. 32, yeah, I 28 or something. You know, so I have to I, double check this, but yeah, keep going. Yeah. So Yes, you're right. 31, 31, 27 is the current okay. stack height of the version 14. So the today's Kinvara is a little more protective than the Kinvara I fell in love with, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. And it doesn't have any real stability features. So you have to have the mechanics that work for you with the Kinvara. But yeah, the whole controversy about like the midsole or the midfoot flex point is not a valid controversy. Yeah, It's just, just like any it. other shoe. Yeah. You've got to try it, see if it works for you. Know if you have any stability needs. It's not going to do anything for you. Um, I would say, you know, just my complaint with the Kinvara is they've made the toe box increasingly narrower over the years. I so totally it's made agree. it less comfortable yeah. for me. But there's nothing like particularly risky about running in a Kinvara. Yeah. When the we had the Kinvara 14 is when I was just recovering from my toe fracture, which again, not to drone on, I broke my toe carrying my cat and kicked a barbell. It actually had nothing to do with running, but it impacted that. So I had a hard time running in that shoe because of that, because of the narrow toe box. And finally, as I got I got over that, I could tolerate it more and more and more, but that was a little tough. But yeah, it's just gotten a little bit more snug, but it's also gotten a lot lighter. So I'd love to see personally a little bit more room there if you've got a little bit less shoe, but it does have a lot higher stack height. So I get some of the concerns. I think Saucony, it would be helpful to maybe widen that midfoot just a little bit because the older versions actually had the midfoot filled in which was great um and it made it what well, wasn't a stability shoe but it just made it like like stable neutral essentially just because that, there was a higher arch the midfoot was wider it was fairly box like which i still remember not to be rude even though because that shoe was my one of my favorite shoes I, I went through i don't know how many pairs but I remember the first time i put it on i was like it feels like i'm running in a shoe box 
And I think I just didn't understand because the midsole wasn't so curved. It was very like straight. And I was like, what is this? And then obviously loved it and then ran, I don't know, like probably 15, 20 pairs of the first couple versions. So yeah. I did several trail races in ah, early Canvaras. Yeah. You know what? The triangle lugs, I forget the yes. name of it. They worked <laughs> so well. It's when when they, they came awesome. out with the the Canvara trail or TR like trails, like, why do you need this? It already works well. <laughs> Right. No offense to Saki, but I was like, why do you need this? It already works fine on trail. Um, but yeah, so they still have that, but it is what it is. So yeah, okay, we're both by on Kinvaras are safe. Just don't create a flex groove. And if, for whatever reason, if you're wearing a Kinvara and any shoe and it starts to do that and it's bothering your foot, maybe it's not appropriate for you. Maybe something about your mechan- how you are interacting with the shoe isn't the best. And that's why you got to really make sure – it's great if you wherever you buy your running shoes, make sure they have some kind of return policy. So if you figure out this isn't working for you, move on. That's that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, more and more running stores do yeah. have like they give you a couple weeks yeah. to run in the shoe and bring yeah. it back. So if it's use not working, that. like they have it yeah. for a reason. Yeah, use it. All right. I don't know about this next one, but I'm going to throw it out. Maybe you might have a more of an opinion than I do. But so buy or sell on the Olympic marathon trials moving down to 10 a.m. Eastern time in order to maximize the athlete performance versus maximize viewership. And then I know Paris is still adjusting. But what do you think about the the time change? Buy or sell? I do have a lot of thoughts about this, mostly from uh, my bike racing experience, but um, kind of crossing over to you. Okay, so they moved it from 12 to 10. I think they said that at noon, what, the temperatures are going to be in the 80s that time of year in Florida. Is that right? No Um, offense to Florida, but that's what you get for having this in Florida. Exactly. (laughs) So that sounds miserable, but the Paris Marathon also could be that hot. Um, So should the race Mm. that, you know, tests who should go to the Olympics have similar conditions? Well, you could argue for that. But then at the same time, you have to consider just overall athlete safety. So in cycling, um, I was a pro cyclist. In the past, organizers had uh, less than optimal concern for rider safety. I've raced in thunderstorms, lightning storms, um, freezing rain, highway, you know, just all sorts of dangerous conditions. And that's part of bike racing. But there have been, there were some races where the conditions were so bad that like the riders actually protested at the start and the officials told us to race anyway. And then at the end of the race, because so many people crashed due to the horrible conditions, they decided to neutralize the results. So basically the race didn't count. After like one woman broke her collarbone, she was supposed to go to the Olympics the next month. It was horrible. So... At There does have to be a tipping point where, yes, you want to choose athletes who are going to race best in the Olympic conditions. But at the same time, you also have to consider, well, is holding the race in these conditions going to be unsafe for everyone? I mean, look at what they did for the Tokyo Olympic Marathon. They moved both the start time and didn't they move like the location of the race too? Like it was originally going to be 
I can't remember. I should know that. I apologize. I should know that. I don't remember. If anybody does remember that, please comment below. But I know where you're going with this. Yeah. You know, it could be 95 degrees in Paris on marathon race day, and they potentially could or should move the start time earlier because, like, at some point, conditions are no longer just challenging, but they're dangerous. So where that tipping point is should be defined. So now cycling actually has like better rules about what to do with adverse weather conditions and how to make decisions. So perhaps the running world needs to have similar guidelines. Like if the heat index is going to be above this or is reasonably expected to be above this based on like historical weather patterns, then the race should be moved earlier for everybody's safety. I, I totally agree that I'm a buy about moving this down that, you know, viewership is one thing, but athlete safety is also pro- is more important than that. Like this isn't some kind of, you know, like I, I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way of, of what I'm saying. It's not like some like show where you just, you know, people are dying out there just for you. It's not it's not the it's not the like Coliseum. It's not the Roman games where if you die, it's just more entertaining. Right. That's not how this is supposed to be. It's athlete safety. We're also talking about Olympics and Olympic marathon trials, which these are formed around humanity. Even like the biggest things that people watch, honestly, was with those moments where like there's compassion and somebody's like struggling and somebody else helps them across the finish line. It's about like compassion and, and being human, not like torturing people for views and money. And I, I, that's really important to remember. So I'm totally for this. And just like from what I remember, the Tokyo Marathon doing the same thing, it's really important from also from a medical first responder standpoint, as someone who's done this, it's not worth it. And as you've seen as a pro athlete, it's not worth it. People can die. And when you start talking about heat, Heat is just as, if not more intense than altitude stuff. And people die all the time. People die every year in in all kinds of athletic events from heat stroke and heat exhaustion. And sometimes some of the impacts of even having that and not dying can be lifelong. So I would totally say bye and even going earlier just to maintain the safety of the athletes. I get it's one thing to try to prepare and see who's going to perform best. It's another to see, you know, like just keeping people safe so just me and you i guess so both because you've actually been (laughs) in that situation yeah (laughs) all right so our next question our next buy or sell is training 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 companion model so an example of this is like the socket endorphin speed being a training companion model to the pro the deviate nitro being a companion to the nitro elite and again another great example be like boston 12 and the adios pro is this good for the market or not, buy or sell? Well, I think it it comes down to your definition of the market, right? Um, is it good for shoe companies? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. More model. Yeah. Uh-huh. Actually, is it good for, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Is it good for runners? Maybe. So here are my thoughts, and then maybe I'll decide if it's a buy or sell. So some people just race in the training companion models. My friend broke three hours in the marathon in the Endorphin Speed 3. She likes it better than the Pro. Uh, there are a lot of people who like the Endorphin Speed or the Deviate Nitro um, better than the Super Shoe Companion. So in that regard, they're expanding the potential racing shoe offerings to people. So that's nice. Um, they're also less expensive, and that's nice for people maybe who can't afford a 250 to $300 racing shoe. 
they can get something that's, you know, in the 160 to 200 range and still get some of those super shoe performance benefits without spending all that money. Um, is it good for, I, I'm sure it helps sell shoes because if somebody buys, let's say the Endorphin Pro and then they don't want to do all of their training in it, one, because they shouldn't, but two, because they want to preserve it for races, then they might be more likely to buy the Speed so they have a shoe with a similar feel, but that is maybe a little more durable and obviously costs less. So in that regard, it's good for athletes. Um, But I think perhaps people might feel like they need to buy both, and that's certainly not true. Um, You could love racing in you know, let's continue with the second example, Endorphin Pro 3, but you might not like the speed. You might like a different shoe for training. So as long as people don't think that it's like a package deal and they have to train in the training companion to like get the most out of the racing shoe, then I think that training companion models are fine. So buy or sell? Pass. <laughs> you know, pass. All right. Yeah. No, I'll go with buy. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go with a solid buy, but I'm going to redirect this and not call these training companions. I'm going to call them alternatives. So the Speed and Pro, from what I understand, and somebody can correct me if on on this, was they were really based on. Um, a couple studies that came out that found that different people respond better to different levels of stiffness. Now, there are other th- differences in the Speed and Pro besides the nylon versus carbon plate, but I've had the same experience where a lot of people love racing in the Speed over the Pro, or there's lots of people who love racing in the Deviate Natural instead of the Deviate Natural Elite. I don't know if I'd call these training companions, although they certainly can be, and it makes sense that if you're trying whatever you have on race day, you should in some way be preparing to utilize that on race day. doesn't mean you have to train it 100%, but having something similar and less aggressive could be an option, but it's also possible that thing that's less aggressive can also be a better thing for you, even though I just use that term less aggressive. Um, so I think it's actually a good thing because it creates more variety and choice for the runner. Now, do they need four different variations of the same model? I don't think so. I think there's a there's a point where it becomes like decision paralysis. But I think having at least a couple variation varying like the amount, like the bounciness, the stiffness, I think that's a good thing because if you only have one model that's like super aggressive, super stiff, and super expensive, I think that limits people. So having like two options is I think a good thing. And like I said to our earlier question, I think the Dorfin Speed, the DV8 Nitro, a lot of these things, the, you know, Saucony Canvar Pro, the Boston 12, I think these are all really good options for a lot of people to race in if they're finding super shoes to be too aggressive. So I'm I'm a I'm a buy for this. Sweet. All right. So now we're going to move into ooh. Yeah, let's keep going. So, let's the next question is something that is starting to come up more as several companies are moving away from the yearly updates, although yearly is a strong uh, word on some of the updates. But buy or sell on biannual model updates versus – so every two years versus annual every single year updates of shoes. I am a solid buy. I think going to every two years just gives – one, if you love a shoe, you know, you're going to have two years with it. Whereas if they update every once, you know, one one per year, you might 
love issue for a year and then they destroy it and then you have to find something else. I am speaking from personal experience, by the way. Um, It also, I think, just helps people. In a way, it's good for shoe companies because it helps people become more loyal to that brand because they may be buying more than one pair of that particular model. Um, But overall, I just think every two years makes more sense for shoes than every year. I'm totally with you just because my opinion, hopefully this doesn't come off mean or, or rude, is that a lot of the the annual updates are really just an upper update and it's not that big and yet they're jacking the price back up. And then you have the last year's model, which is almost the same thing, although sometimes they say it's an upper update and it's actually a completely different shoe and you're like, what happened with this? But I think doing that isn't a very smart thing on the company side because then you're just adding a slightly different upper, which people are on the the majority are probably not going to get that. They're going to go, look, I'm going to go get the basically the same shoe that's now discounted. So that doesn't make sense. Um, there is times where they say it's an upper update and the shoe changes. And so totally with you that I think people need to get time to get used to a shoe instead of rushing to put stuff out. And I think a lot of the updates, there's not all, but there's been some updates recently where it's like, you didn't have to put that out. Like you should just put like a slightly different color and spend a little bit more time, like really working to create something worthy of calling it an update and worthy of creating a full price tag that people are going to buy that. So I'm definitely a buy with this as well, which I know can be frustrating for people because like, oh, I want the newest thing. I want to see this. It's like, yeah, you might have to geek out for another year. Like that's what happens. Like it doesn't bother me that we might, you know, we might not have as many shoes to test. Like we're super lucky with what we get to do. And does it bother me? No, it just means we'll get more miles on the stuff we have and hopefully get you better, um, more long-term content and people can actually enjoy the shoe longer. So I'm totally a, a buy as well, especially if it means that companies get more time to actually really work on stuff instead of feeling rushed to get a new product out. Because we've definitely gotten into that age of like, what's the new update? What's the new update? What's the new update? It's like, chill out and get used to the thing and like focus on running. Right. And, yeah, Says the person know, not, that founded a, a shoe review website. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, not everybody's buying shoes right yeah. when all of the new ones are released. So by the time somebody decides to try like this year's whatever, it's probably time for the next year's model and then they're not going to be able to find it. Please remind me about that when I freak out. Like, oh my gosh, we have to get this review out as soon as possible. Like, people are probably not going to be reading this for a while because they're going to be waiting. <laughs> even though I panic about that, I have to run three times to get this review out. Behind, behind oh. true, true stories. By the way, the of what I have done to try to get a review out on time. Well, we also know that you don't really mind running three times a day. So that's true. That's yeah. totally fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm the crazy one. It's true. All right. Next question. So we're a buy on that. So next question is non-plated racing shoes for 5Ks, buy or sell? So I'm going to say sell for my personal preference, but buy for, you know, everyone else because it depends. I had a lot of hope for the Hoka Cielo last year. Oh, literally I already grabbed this. Yes. And Hoka, you're, they're just... Well, now there is one Hoka that fits me nicely, but I can't talk about it yet. Um, wait, but wait, you might be able to wait. When is this being, being oh. released? Are we gonna get? No, we signed an NDA no, for that. No. So yeah, let's not get in we'll trouble. Wait. Yeah. yeah. So, um, it, 
by December 31st of 2023, there was no hoka that fit my foot comfortably because the sidewalls irritate my uh, first MTP. Um, but the Cielo, if it was wider in the toe box, I think I would race a 5K in it, but it is not. It gave me a lot of pain. So I personally love the AlphaFly 1 for 5Ks, which is not the typical thing, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But um, it's my fastest shoe, and I love it. It's so fast. Um, but for other people... It might be that a non-plated shoe is the best shoe for you in a 5K. Again, it depends on your mechanics. It depends on how fast you're running. It depends on the type of course, right? And so, again, there's no rule that just because super shoes exist, you have to race in them. So if you feel faster, especially at faster paces for a 5K in a non-plated shoe, then by all means, use one. Use the best tool for you. Or if you're running, you know, if you're just doing 5Ks to finish, you definitely don't need a super shoe. Run in what's comfortable. So for me, it's the Elf Fly one all the way for 5Ks. But for everyone else, just like everything else, use the best tool for you. I'm going to say buy, although I like options just because the Cielo Road was pretty solid, although I have a little issue where it's just a teeny bit long for me. But a shoe like the Cyclone 2, I think David and I, I think we've talked about a little bit where I actually like a little more flexibility when I'm trying to run really fast. When things get too stiff or like too efficient, so to speak, it's just hard to – it's hard to push really hard and get really, really fast personally. So I'm a buy just for – Vary it for like some variety, but not saying everybody has to do it, but not for everyone. I get it. That's kind of more of a personal thing. Have you All raced right. a 5K recently in a non plated shoe? Have I? I've done some mile races uh, against yeah. my students in non plated shoes and actually preferred that for sure, but I don't know if I've done. T- All right. I'm going to admit this that I almost did, and then I saw a bunch of high schoolers, and I was like, "Oh no, I have to grab whatever the most aggressive <laughs> shoe I have." We got like Endorphin Elite, even though it's not what I don't think it was the best choice. I keep grabbing it because I'm most comfortable with that shoe, and I was just scared mm-hmm. to be totally honest. So no, I haven't. But when throwing down against my students during mile races, I have definitely used non-plated shoes. Which ones? Uh, I have used the Cielo Road. I've also used the Cyclone Two from Topo. Oh um, yeah. And it's worked really, really well. Like nice. this pair, I think has like a five, a five oh seven on it. Um, so it worked. It was nice. great. Yeah, awesome. I think out of all the non-plated shoes, if I was going to do like a mile race, it would either be the Cyclone or the Streak Fly. That's fair. Hard to pick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I never got to run in the Streak Fly. I'm still oh. kind of curious. It's very nice. All right, I'll have to try the next yeah. version. All right, next one. Ooh, I I have some very strong opinions about this. Buy or sell super shoes that last less than 100 miles. I'll let you go first so I can calm down a little bit. So if there was a super shoe that lasted less than 100 miles but helped me get a PR, like get a achieve a major goal, I would absolutely buy it. Um, but that being said, we're kind of entering well, we have entered an age of running where you can kind of buy speed, right? 
And that wasn't necessarily the case pre-Super Shoe. Like, yeah, you could buy like a racing flat, but those were actually less expensive than yeah, normal they were. shoes. They, you, unless you're buying the original Takubi Sons was like 160 bucks, which is crazy. <laughs> But yeah, like if you were buying like a Saucony eight or something, like right, that's cheaper. You know, that was like right. under a hundred dollars, I think. Right, those are um, also great to tr- if you were like a crazy minimalist like me to train in because you like, oh, I want a new shoe, but I, I just wore through this and I could find them on sale for like fifty bucks and then <laughs> totally, yeah, I love through that those. Shoe. Yeah, it was yeah. great. So, I, kind of what's happening in running reminds me a lot of cycling. Like in cycling, you definitely can buy speed. You can buy wheels that make you faster. You can buy uh, pulleys that are oversized and ceramic that save you five watts, which if, you know, your race comes down to like a few seconds, that makes a difference. But we're talking about spending hundreds of dollars on something that's going to last like a couple hundred miles of cycling, which is like nothing. So that has basically trickled down to running. And it's making running less, um, well, it's it's basically making running more expensive. And it's making the new technology inaccessible to a lot of runners, which is unfortunate. Um, but, you know, this is a capitalist society, right? These companies have a right to develop this stuff. And if people buy them, then they're going to keep making them. So if they only last 100 miles, fine. That kind of sucks. Maybe the companies could work on making them last a little bit longer, but often what makes them great is that they're so lightweight, which usually means a pretty minimalist outsole. So if that's what it is, but it helps you meet your goals, then that's great. And if you're willing to spend, you know, if it's worth that much to you to spend $500 on a racing shoe, then, you know, you're free to spend your money that way. But it is kind of sad that running, which used to be like a little more egalitarian, is kind of moving into the like equipment heavy realm, like cycling or golf or other sports like that. I so buy or sell? I would buy. You would buy. Oh, I gosh. would buy. All right. You know what? I'm going to do what you did earlier and not say it till later and maybe pass. But I. I'm probably not the best person because a lot of super shoes do last at or less than 100 miles because I'm so rough on them, although a lot of shoes in general do. That that being said, I've had several super shoes that do last way longer. And ironically, those have been the ones like the Saucony Endorphin Pro 3. I've got like 110 miles on it and it's still totally fine and, and usable. It's not – it doesn't have the same bounce it did at the start, but it's still totally usable and the outsole is fine. So and that shoe is actually not it's not one of the more expensive ones. Like you can find it on sale. It's like two twenty five, right? Versus some of the models that are like two seventy five, three hundred, five hundred. I don't have a problem with shoes lasting less than hundred miles because like I'm kind of used to that personally. I do have an issue with people charging five hundred bucks for a shoe that's like only supposed to last for like you know, a couple runs. And maybe I'm just, to be honest with you, maybe I'm just upset that Adidas never sent me the Evo Pro 1 and I didn't get a chance to trash it. Maybe I'm biased. Maybe I might have a different opinion if they sent it to me for free. But I think even then, I think to be honest with you, it probably, that shoe would probably last like three miles for me and then it would come apart and be like, oh, this is not worth $500. Like, that's not fair. So, yeah, I I like 
the continual improvement with super shoes. They are really cool. It's fun to use for racing. It's fun. It makes things like really exciting and it's cool. But I think from, like you said, the egalitarian point, like it does really limit a lot of people and yeah, you know, you could, you can buy your way through a lot of stuff. Some of the models are getting insane. Um, and almost like exclusive. Like I think it's kind of annoying that a lot of companies will be like, oh, we have this small drop and you got to pay 500 bucks and only a couple of people can get it. We're going to charge you 300 bucks and only a couple of people can get it. It's like, you know, people want this. You know, they're going to buy it. Like just provide the supply. People are going to buy this. You're going to make money. You don't have to wait and annoy people. So I'm kind of – that's a whole – that's not what the question is. It's super shoes that last less than 100 miles. I'm – until you can show me that we're seeing crazy, crazy improvements across the board, like you said, I'm kind of a sell on this just because of the cost. If I'm paying that much, I'm going to expect this to last some time at least, right? I'm, I don't want this to be a shoe that breaks down within 20 miles because to be honest, for me, my performance isn't worth that. Like to me, the experience of the shoe, what I'm using it for, all those comfort, all the other factors, knowing I don't have to just like – drop another like mortgage on a new shoe is I is kind of important. And I think it's a lot of these super shoes, you can still get miles out of them after you finish if they're durable enough. So the like I said, I'm keep like gushing about the endorphin pro three, but I'm using it for still workouts and things when I have time because I enjoy it and it's not a shoe I'm gonna race in now, but it still has a purpose and I can get things out of it. I was lucky that it was sent to me for free, but I'm still gonna get miles out of it. Right. So let me give a different example of a shoe I actually bought was one of the Puma racers. I actually bought all of them except for the Fast R. Um, like this shoe I spent like 200 plus bucks on and I'm still going to get miles out of it. And the durability's actually been great. So I'm going to keep using this even though it might not be something I race in. It's something that I want to get miles out of and get my miles, my money's worth. So I think from an economy standpoint, yeah, I'm kind of – I'm kind of a sell on super shoes that last 100 miles unless you can show me something that really blows things out of the water. And then for me personally, it's not super worth it. That's what the whole team, by the way, has been like, Matt, do not buy the Evo Pro on eBay. It's not worth it. And they don't have to tell me because I'm like, I'm not interested. Like, it, I that's think just, the, I don't want to spend 1500 bucks. I think it's just how much it costs on eBay right now because, yes, I have looked. The ultimate irony, Matt, would be if the Evo Pro ended up being like the shoe that you couldn't destroy. <laughs> it's actually the opposite. Like, yeah, it won't last. I'm like, uh-huh. I have a thousand miles on these yeah. and I can't kill this. This is really frustrating. <laughs> I took a sand grinder. I can't do it. No, that'd be hilarious. Great. So, all right. I'm going to sell on that. Uh, all, okay. Buy or sell all running shoes should have a wider toe box. Ooh, we're gonna I'm actually some... going to say sell on that, even though okay. I often complain that shoes should have a wider toe box because some shoes should have a wider toe box, but some shoes, the toe box is fine. And a toe box that's wide enough for me might be way too wide for somebody else. So I think all running shoes should be shaped like an actual foot, which means nobody's foot is shaped like, you know, a V. Yeah. So if you have a shoe that significantly tapers in the toe box, no one's foot is shaped like that. And it's going to cause all sorts of problems for your feet, the function of the intrinsic muscles in your feet, the function of your first MTP joint. So I have a big problem with shoes that are tapered. And I think shoes should be 
appropriately foot-shaped, but foot-shaped for me is different than foot-shaped for you is different than somebody else. So I would like shoes to be appropriately designed, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all of them need to be wider because too wide allows for foot translation in the shoe, which can lead to pain, blisters, stability issues. So needs to fit appropriately. I'm totally with you that I think the correct, so I'm a sell on this. The correct term that needs to be used is anatomic. It doesn't need to be pointed, but it also doesn't need to be a shoe that you're sliding around in, right? It still needs to be able to fit. The purpose of an upper is to be able to keep your foot securely on the platform. That's its whole definition and that's what it's supposed to be. If it's constricting your foot in a way that's, that's, that is causing some kind of harm, be it pressure or blisters, it's the same problem as if it's not securing your foot and you're sliding around and you're insecure. So not every – this is why – and I got some hate for this where I said that not everything needs to have a wider toe box on one of our podcasts or the one of the Monday shakeouts. But yeah, it's because not everybody has a super wide foot. People that have a, cert, a, a wide foot, yes, that's why we talk about shoes. This shoe has a wider fit, a higher volume. We talk about that stuff. But it doesn't mean every shoe needs to be like that because our feet are so different. And that, that is the challenge of trying to find a shoe that works for you because every company is designing shoes based on either a few people or a massive average that you and I may not fit into. Like here's the average, but we're over here, over here, you know? So it's not everything needs to be the same. Variability is good because people have different length feet. They have different shape feet. They have different volume feet, but having it be a little bit more anatomic rather than pointed is key, but it doesn't necessarily have to be super wide. So I am a sell on that with an asterisk behind that going, you need to, you know, we have to define these things better. It's almost like people used to say like support was analogous with how much cushion It's like, no, 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 stop saying that. Use the right term. It doesn't have, not everything has to be wide. Just be a bit more anatomic and you don't need a point in the middle of your like third, like metatarsal, like or phalange. All right. So, uh, non-carbon fiber plated shoes or non-carbon fiber plated plates. Wow. I'm going to start over. Non-carbon fiber plated plates in performance shoes, either plastic, glass fiber, or fiberglass. Don't yell at me for that. Nylon, etc. Buy or sell? I'm a solid buy on that and I'll give several reasons. Okay. First of all, a lot of people think carbon is like this magical um, compound that is just going to make you faster. And if a shoe has carbon plate in it, it is the best. That is not true. You know, we already talked about how some people prefer like the Endorphin Speed, which has a nylon plate, to the Pro, which has a carbon plate. So just the presence of carbon plate in a shoe doesn't mean anything for how it's going to work for you. And we also know that the presence of the plate is actually not like the magic that produces the improvements in running economy. There have been some studies where, you know, they think that the plate is maybe about a 1% of the four percent, yeah, at most, at most of the four percent improvement in running economy, but there were also studies where they cut the plate and they didn't see a significant change in running economy. So, I, you know, I hear all the time like, "Oh, I've got to get a carbon plated shoe. That's, you know, that's going to make me faster in my races." It's like, not necessarily. You've got to find one where like everything works for you, not just the fact that it has carbon in it. The other thing is carbon fiber can vary greatly in terms of how it's produced, how it's laid up. 
carbon's a great material because it's very lightweight, it's stiff, and you can use it in shoes. It's very temperature resistant, so whether it's like super cold or super hot, it's still going to perform the same. But there is a huge variation in the quality of carbon. So you don't, and like we really have no idea what kind of carbon is in these various shoes. So the other thing is stiffer is not better. Like there is a sweet spot for stiffness. So some people will find a particular carbon plated shoe too stiff for them. One, maybe it's because the plate itself is too stiff or how the plate bends doesn't line up with their foot or just the combination of the plate and the midsole and the geometry don't work for them. But stiffer is not better when it comes to shoes. And again, I'll go back to cycling. So, you know, 20 years ago, cycling shoes were primarily made of like nylon or nylon soles. And, you know, now all of the high-end shoes are made of carbon soles. There's a ton of cyclists, especially ones who grew up racing with nylon shoes, that find these carbon-soled shoes too stiff. So there are actually companies that will make a high-end shoe with a nylon sole because people want that. And people feel like they perform better with a shoe that has a little more flex in it, even though you really don't want your cycling shoe to flex very much, but just that small amount of flex is more comfortable. So again, carbon is not a magical material. You might find that a nylon-plated shoe or a plastic or fiberglass-plated shoe feels much better. It's more comfortable. You run faster in it. So don't... I. You only take one thing out of, out of all the things I just said about carbon fiber. It's that carbon isn't magical. The presence of a carbon plate doesn't make a shoe better. There's so many other things that go into it. So definitely a buy on the non-carbon fiber plates and performance shoes. I, I will say buy, but I do have a caveat for all the uh, shoe company marketing teams out there. Every time you say the carbon fiber plate is what makes the shoe faster, a small baby animal dies. So stop saying that. It's not true. Okay. I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> morbid and horrible, but it drives me insane. We have plenty of evidence right now. So yes, it's the, the carbon. Yes. As Andrew mentioned, it's, it's great. It's temperature resistant. It's available. It's easy, you know, you can mold it in certain ways, but it's not the actual plate that's doing these things by itself. And we're discovering there's actually other factors to what is the geometry like? How was the plate interacting with the midsole? And then in some cases, even your favorite vapor fly, cutting the plate doesn't affect the efficiency. Thank you, Laura Healy. Uh, shout out to your study on that. So it's way more complicated than that. I've gotten into so many internet arguments, which have taught me a lot about not getting into internet arguments about this, that again, the plates add stiffness to the shoe. How you respond to it, this is a study by McClode et al. that was done with Saucony and helped to the, be the kind of the reason between the Speed and Pro. As we talked about, some people prefer the Speed. Part of that might be the stiffness, the fact that some people actually do better with a little more flexibility. I prefer running faster in the Cyclone 2 over a carbon-plated shoe because I, David and I might like that a little bit more flexibility. Other people, Andrea likes the Alpha Fly 1, right? She likes that. You know, it's everybody's going to be a little bit different. But just saying, oh, why this shoe is super is because of the carbon plate is totally BS. You know, we're seeing stuff with the what, – what is the, um, the Rebellion Pro 2 and 1 did not have a carbon plate, correct? It was – correct. Yeah, it's, it's like carbon-infused carbon or something mm -hmm. like that. It's not fully. Yep. 
Yeah. So like we have plenty of other things coming out where that's not the only thing and it's still a crazy good shoe. So it's still that like super suit, whatever the next level of super ultra shoe, super, I don't know, super duper shoe. Um, can I coin that super duper shoe? Yeah. <laughs> I think variability is good because again, we've talked about this. Different people are going to respond to different things. Carbon seems to be widely available. It seems to be, as you said, it can be, it's temperature resistant, but the quality that you're getting, how you're using it can vary. And it might be good to have a couple other things because people might work better with those things. So it's not the end all be all. And especially as you mentioned, because it's not one of the primary predictors of the economy improvement in the shoes, like the foams tend to be some of the biggest things. I think we need to make sure we're putting our focus in the right place. But also when I say that, I mean, you need to think about geometries. You need to think about all the other factors that go into us, not just, oh, there's a carbon fiber plate there. Because there's plenty of shoes that, with carbon plates that absolutely suck and feel terrible. So yeah, I'm definitely a buy for this. I think it would be nice if, you know, and we've certainly talked about this on the site and in podcasts, but if people thought of plates as just a means of stiffening the shoe, not as a magic wand, they're just one way to provide stiffness to often a very high volume of unstable foam. Right. Which is totally fair. Like I'm not, I am not at all saying you don't need carbon plates. I am saying if you're going to design a shoe, like for example, the Alpha Fly, can you imagine the Alpha Fly without a plate? Like that, it would be, it would fall apart. There's no way with the amount of geometry, that's that's what's creating the stiffness that actually probably holds the shoe together. So I'm not saying they're not required. I'm saying the material has some room for improvements. And are they important to maintain the integrity of the shoe? Yes. Is that what's actually giving you the bounce and the quote unquote speed relates to the economy improvements? No, it's actually the combination of all the factors, but one of the biggest variables is actually not the plate. So I'm all for trying other things, seeing how they go, experimenting, because that's what creates progress. Just using the same thing doesn't create progress. So that's me. All right, we are going to end with a final question that I know we're going to disagree on because uh, we talked about this. So we're going to talk about Alpha Fly 1 versus Alpha Fly 3. Which one is better slash buy or sell? Andre, I'll let you go first because this is near and dear to your heart because apparently you disagreed with my uh, my comparison review. <laughs> so this question came up because Matt did his Alpha Fly 1 versus Alpha Fly 3 comparison video on YouTube. And after I watched it, I sent him a message telling him that I disagreed with pretty much everything he said. <laughs> <laughs> Which is good. I, that's, yeah, it's you good. Know, I it probably would should have had you do it. if we but, all agreed. Yeah. Right. That's the um, whole point is that's what creates more interesting content. You so, should do like a rebuttal video. I'll be like, he's wrong. <laughs> Let me tell you what's true. No, just kidding. Well, it would be funny if I did a rebuttal video where like I was overlaid on your video and I'm like, oh, we should, <laughs> yeah. oh, we should totally do that. <laughs> Bach will have to help me because I certainly don't be know awesome. how to do that. Yeah. Like, pause. <laughs> I can't believe this idiot said that. No, I was kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so. I definitely choose Alpha Fly 1 over Alpha Fly 3. And wow. I will explain why. And of okay. course, this has to do, Matt and I have very different mechanics. Um, I land at my midfoot. Matt definitely doesn't. Um, and the Alpha Fly 1, the location of those air zoom units is basically like right where I land. So the shoe, and I'm sure that if you heel strike in Alpha Fly 1, it feels like a completely different shoe than it feels to me. But because I land right on those air zoom units, it just feels like a rocket ship that like 
just shoots me forward. It is hands down the fastest super shoe I've ever run in. And because of that, I will never run a marathon in it. It's too aggressive. Like it's too much for me to control for 26.2 miles. I've used it for up to a half marathon and it was great, but I definitely wouldn't take it any longer. Um, so the Alpha Fly one, I it's fast. I love it. Like every time I run in it, like whatever my, pr- like, oh, this feels like, you know, 625 pace and I'm doing 615 pace in it. Like it's just reliably faster for me. Um, but I just, it's too aggressive to take for really long distances. So Alpha Fly 3, because one, it's gone from a four millimeter drop in version one to eight millimeter in version three. And two, they encapsulated those air zoom units. I just don't get that same like rocket ship feeling from landing on the air zoom units in the three like I do in the one. And it also feels like the heel just slightly gets in the way in version three, whereas in the one, like, it could not be there at all. And I wouldn't notice, you know, I'm not landing there one bit. So Alpha Fly 3 feels a little slower, but it still feels like I also wouldn't use Alpha Fly 3 in a marathon because even though it feels less aggressive than one, it still feels too aggressive because of the air zoom units to use for 26.2. So it's it all has to do with the difference in our mechanics. Why? I disagree with what Matt said because, of course, he found Alpha Fly 3 much more aggressive, and I'll let him explain why. But for me, the one is like the best Nike shoe that's ever been. You know, it's it's my favorite super shoe. Like, I, it would be interesting to do metabolic efficiency testing in it to see like how much more efficient I am than in other shoes that I would race in because I'm sure it's large just based on the the improvement in my pace at various effort levels. So um, there's my answer, Matt. Um, what's yours? <laughs> so obviously mine is obviously the opposite. Where I, I think I was able to appreciate the Alpha Fly 1, but my mechanics, and for those who have watched this enough, based on my wear patterns, I mean, it's not my wear patterns. I, wear patterns are useless and you shouldn't pay attention to them. It's based on biomechanical videos and watching this stuff that I will crush the heel and so the first Alpha Fly, uh, did I say Vaporfly or Alpha Fly? Alpha Fly. Yeah. The first Alpha Fly being the lower drop, I could appreciate it. And it was actually really comfortable to run at like moderate paces and even easy paces. But running faster when I really compressed that heel drop down, it felt like a negative drop shoe for me. And so it felt like I had to climb out of it to get onto the AirPods and get off. And I know people who probably land farther forward, you're probably like, this is the greatest shoe. And I totally understand why Andrea likes that shoe. From my mechanics, I did not feel like it had the aggressiveness of that. I wanted, which is why I never raced in it. I did a couple workouts in it and I actually got a pair that I continue to do stuff in up to hundred miles, which did great, but it was just not something I was ever going to reach for just because it didn't have that aggressiveness that I wanted that I know a lot of other people felt based on the mechanics. Version three was totally different. The increased drop, what feels like a much lighter shoe, the way I load the forefoot, it tends to work a lot better. So I'm either on my heel or when I start picking up the pace initially, I will get up on my forefoot. I don't usually tend to touch the midfoot as much. Um, so where how that shoe is designed tends to work really well. I can load the heel very well and not feel like it like bottoms out into a negative drop shoe. And it, But it is very aggressive. I will agree with Andrew that I don't know if I would wear it for a marathon. I think half 
might be my max, not because there's not enough cushioning, but I don't know if I could control that shoe when it gets past, when I fatigue. I, I'll probably test it out, although I have zero interest in doing marathons ever again. I think the max I'd like to do is a half, and uh, just because I like being able to somewhat walk the next day, but that's just a personal preference. Um, so yeah, I just found it had way more bounce, and I think it's because how I'm loading it and because I also appreciate it being lighter as well. But yeah, I really think we need to have uh, uh, a uh, rebuttal video. I feel like that would be fun. <laughs> It'd be great to have that content. Yes. Yeah, it would just be fun <laughs> to have us do that for each other when you like totally disagree. Like we should get BJ on here. Like you, you two should like rebuttal video each other with the Rebellion Flash 2 and things like that versus <laughs> one. That'd be awesome. But it also is another encouraging thing that again – we we get a lot of comments be like, oh, well, this shoe feels like this. And it's like I totally understand why you say that based on how you're kind of describing your mechanics. We all describe the shoe based on how we're loading it. We try to think about how the people might do that. But that's why we try to have a couple of reviewers on every shoe that are different because we know that perception of something under your foot is actually very, very individual. We do our best to describe it, but there's limitations to that. So if you find one of us that you tend to match best with, follow that person because that's probably who's going to be the most similar reaction to you. So I, I totally get it, but that was just how I felt about the two of them. So let's get that rebuttal video going. So we we appreciate you following us along for another buy and sell episode that I had a I, – I don't know about you, Andrew, but I had a blast with this and this was really fun. Yeah, this was this, fun. <laughs> yeah, this was really good. We always – if you have any buy or sell topics for us, please let us know because we will definitely keep doing these. And please, please, please – Comment below on whatever platform that you're uh, that you're viewing on or listening on to be what you think because we actually really, really care what you think because that's part of adding to this conversation, helping all of us learn and think about this stuff. As always, you can find us on several different areas. We were also, obviously got the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, a different the podcast air. We do upload this to YouTube so you can actually see us and see all my weird facial expressions that Bach is now using for all the like thumbnails for the videos. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do respect him so much that he actually goes through and finds like, where's that weird, the weirdest face that Matt makes this entire time? That's going to be the, and then he picks the best ones. It's great. Well, uh, tell him at what time stamp you just made that face. So yeah, okay, got <laughs> Save it. Save him some work. Yes. <laughs> Four o'clock. So we also have tons of other social media channels as always, be it Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, X, whatever, whatever. You can find it. LinkedIn. You can find us on all those. We're always putting, and obviously the biggest area is the website. You can find all of our new content out there. We appreciate you listening. Appreciate your feedback and hope you have a great run. 